Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to the best of My Time Capsule 2022 Part 3. What a catchy title. Yes, we've had so many brilliant guests on My Time Capsule this year that we've managed to fill three episodes with clips of our favourite moments from the past year. In fact, we could have done about ten more episodes, but I've had to be brutal. In fact, if you've listened to the first two episodes of this collection, then you may have noticed certain notable absences. Where was Joe Wilkinson? Where's Michelle Rue Jr.? The fabulous internet sensational actor Michael Spicer, David Gower, the cricket legend, Linford Christie, our greatest ever sprinter, Hugh Dennis, who's done some things, and of course, where the hell is Danny Baker? He was so good, he ended up as two whole episodes, packed with amazing stories from Danny's incredible life. Well, have no fear, because this is where they are. Indeed, you may even say we've saved the best till last. Rather like Jesus at a wedding. If that's not an inappropriate joke at this time of year. So let's start with our most popular guest this very year, 2022. Danny Baker, talking about his years as a DJ. The worst thing is when people say, what's been the best call you ever had? My memory is pretty spacious I'm well known for the memory and been out to pick up and people say how do you remember you know that bit player in wagon train how do you remember (laughs) you know uh, theme tunes how do you remember slogans all of this kind of ephemera but I can only do that on the air I cannot do that in what we might call real life (laughs) people say to us what's the best call you ever had I go um and I literally cannot remember I, I trust they were amusing while they were being broadcast but I never have an answer to that question. No. Uh, and, and if you ask me with a gun to my head to write down 10 calls, I think that's how it should be. Absolutely. I mean, if you just catalogued all that stuff in your head, you'd go slightly mad, wouldn't you? Yeah. And, and if I ever listened to it back in an orgy of self-congratulation, I think I would. But I've never done that. No. I've always had the idea that you're on the air to work, not appear. You're on the air to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. And uh, to have a post-mortem on that or even to you know pack your own back. It's like if you do a dog of a show and... In a career that I insist be called uneven, I've done a few. But, <laughs> but the, 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 the thing is, the great thing about radio, daily radio used to be, you get back on the horse the next day. And I'd like to think yeah. there were very few. And if they are a dog, you walk away from it and you say, well, that's it. There's usually technical reasons. But um, whatever it is, I've built a career out of this, um, you know, just this stream of consciousness, to, okay, always talking, which happened by, <laughs> totally by accident. I wasn't ever a radio listener at all in our house two-way family favourites and uh, music while you work was the only two things I remember. It seems to be my generation, all of them spent time under the bed covers listening to Radio Luxembourg and, and Pirate Radio. I never did. No. Um, 
records played in it a lot in our house, but we didn't. Radio was never, and I never listened to things like Kenny Everett. Didn't listen to John Peel much. No, radio wasn't. Um, no, it, it didn't feature. I was never a radio listener at all. Maybe that's why your style is so different to so many people. Bless you for saying the word style there, because that's what it's become. <laughs> it was. It was I'm style in a sense of a, a wooden gate you have to climb over. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you said sty for a second. I mean, you know, styes don't happen much anymore. I'm not broadcasting anymore, but it just it flashes through my head. Uh, my mum used to say, if you've got a sty on your eye, which yeah. you don't get anymore, not a lot, no. you rub it with a wedding ring. And that's what you, I know. And I can see her doing it one of my aunts now. It's only because <laughs> I thought when you say sty, uh, and that, to me, leapt straight to um, a sty's my mum could cure by rubbing a wedding ring on it. Anyway. There you are. That's how Danny's brain works. From DJing to how to remove a sty with a wedding ring in 48 small steps. Right, another guest from this year with a similar scatterbrain style is the comedian Dara O'Brien. He knows a thing or two about comedy, doesn't he? But there is one thing when it comes to people talking about that subject that he really objects to. But the one I find most irritating of all these comedy must be this, comedy must be that, is... We must all be depressed. <laughs> that, I think, is a genuinely, phenomenally irritating cliche that people write all the time and go, and you go, back that up, back that up with, and, okay, I'll give you Hancock. I'll give you Hancock, right? A Milligan, right? But who else? In an industry of hundreds of people, show me the seam of depression that runs through this industry any more than postal workers or <laughs> yeah. particularly rock stars, right? Show me this glut of suicides kind of um, people communicating any more than in any walk of life. But it is a cliche that people adore this idea of, um, oh, it comes from a very dark place. Yes. Oh, the greatest comedy comes from a dark place. Nobody ever goes, Jesus, I love your bathroom. I love what you've done with that. What, how did you get such a lovely bathroom? He said, well, we, uh, we, we got a depressed plumber. Because <laughs> the best plumbing comes from a very dark place. Nobody says about any other trade. It's nonsense. And of course, it completely denies the fact that all of it is an act. You're not angry every night. Oh, you've got to repeat it night after night. Night after night, I'm that angry, I'm going to die. It's an act. Of course not, absolutely. It's a way of delivering a joke. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so A, you get rid of, like, you know, I, when I go to Edinburgh, always hunt out the stuff I know I could never do, which is the kind of sketch stuff which descends into silliness, which requires an enormous amount of control. Like, this is much your um, your ballpark, the mind, like, whatever. But you go to see, for example, Mischief Theatre, the people who do the play that went wrong and yes. these kind of things. I remember seeing them in Edinburgh and laughing like a drain. Yeah. Because just that standing deadpan as the door falls over your head, like, whatever, <laughs> I can't... Do that, I don't know, that's amazing <laughs> to me, whatever. And, or building things up so that it escalates and the tension builds dramatically into silliness or whatever, noises off, whatever, that kind of stuff. That to me, things going wrong, I lap that shit up. Right? Yeah. It's got nothing to do with depression or anger or pushing boundaries. It's just <laughs> insanely funny to me. Because there's things that you, sometimes the community you go, well, that's a, f- a funny, or I've written a funny joke. But actually, you're supposed to be the funny thing. Yeah. The joke is just a bullet in the gun, um, as it were. And you're actually the funny thing. And often the funny things, you find if, you, if, you, if you're making a baby laugh, like whatever, you go, uh, it is, it's in the time. <laughs> and the kid will laugh. Uh, and it's like, you go, oh, and there's just something instinctive, the rhythm of this. There's an instinctive rhythm. Mm. And seeing that work, properly professional in a big room and just cutting through everything yeah. into that instinctive rhythm is just oh just and I, I'm in fits for it so but the idea that the, the people have these rules for it like whatever and depression is most ridiculous because look everyone has or knows people who have depression and they don't all work in comedy <laughs> and it isn't that neat irony the fucking great Pagliacci my whole I have a long takedown <laughs> of the great Pagliacci story in the show because I drive you up the world but I am the great Pagliacci oh really <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that because I'm only a trained psychiatrist I never thought to ask you your job <laughs> I mean, there's no, or check your name or why you're wearing those big shoes. I never thought to ask any of that as you walked into my psychiatrist's office. And even when you did say, I'm very incredibly, oh, doctor, I'm very depressed. Like your answer was to go, go see a show, mate. Go see a comedy show. Like that'll cheer you up. You're going to cheer up for Christ. Have a laugh. Have a laugh. Like whatever. Who keep telling the story like it's a thing, like it ever happened. But I am the great Pagliacci. Oh, mind blow. Fuck off. Uh, absolute nonsense. Yeah. Absolute nonsense. It's rubbish. It's a cheap irony. It's an absolute cheap irony that's mm. gone. We're grand. We're fine. 
You know, we're okay. <laughs> yes, it's a tough job sometimes. And yes, there's a bit more oh, thinking about yourself than maybe other jobs that, that might not might be healthy, like whatever. But really, mm. we're going to lecture dentists about depression. We're going to lecture, you know, <laughs> other trades that genuinely seem to suffer quite badly. Yeah. Comedy is completely different depending on who's doing it and who's saying it and who it's for. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And it is very little that unifies it other than just, other than we're all driven to get that laugh from strangers. Mm. If you go, oh, you're a comic, oh, you're a comic, you automatically, we share this ridiculous thing yeah. that we have tried to make people laugh. Mm. And that is a club, and we're all in that club. And there's no other rules other than that, like whatever. If you've walked, if you've done an open spot, or, you, or you're Billy Connolly, we're all in that club. Yeah. We've all stepped out in this ridiculous chaotic, nonsensical, arrogant, <laughs> pathetic attempt to get a reaction and love from strangers. And we've all tried to do it. And therefore, you're in it. You're in the club. Here's yeah. your path. You're, yes. you're there. So that, yeah, we share more than we could possibly differ on. Yes, you've got the nerve to do it. Or the need to do it. Or you need My, to do the it. The need. Yes. The need to do it. It's, I do, I do. People always talk in terms of, when did you discover this gift? I didn't discover a gift. I discovered a need. And <laughs> that was what drove it. That yeah. is what made all the difference. Dara O'Brien. How lucky we are that he needed to be funny. Right, I'm not sure we've heard enough from Danny Baker, so here's another quick burst of him talking about the sort of ideas he bases his radio shows around. This might happen a few more times. Uh, I've still got all the... Because uh, uh, I'm cannibalising some stuff these days. And even I look down the lists of these and think, that's odd. Uh... Odd reasons to like a pop group. <laughs> what is your house built on? Uh, uh, attempts to raise money as a kid. Uh, uh, you've actually lived the pop lyric. Tell us about triplets. Uh, five great stories about goats. <laughs> and you say at the top, right, we're not going off the air. You're not a good audience. Unless by the end of this, we get five goat stories. Uh, finding it difficult to dispose of something. Uh, thinking there's something familiar about this place, uh, <laughs> work leaving gifts, uh, something about gunpowder. It, it's and all you got to do is throw these headings out there. If one person responds to any one of those, you've got a story. Okay, next up we have the beautiful person that is Gail Porter talking about her alopecia. Not a happy subject and something that must have been awful for her, but like everything with Gail, it has become a strength. When it first happened, obviously it was a complete shock to the system because I was working in Vegas looking for dead people, as you do. Um, I was doing a program called Dead Famous and we were in a, in, a, in a graveyard and my hair had just been falling out in clumps and clumps and clumps. And there was no reason for it and I didn't understand. And then I went into a little trailer and there was a lovely makeup artist and I had sort of, do you remember the the advert when the guy was smoking a cigar and... Um, oh, yeah. The, the, the crossover. What was yes. that? Yeah. And it was like... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I had I had that little bit of hair. Um, I just said to her, do you know what? Just get rid of it because I can't cope with this anymore. And um, so she shaved it off. Mm. And um, I thought, wow, um, I... I've lost all my hair in four weeks. This is quite um, a big thing. And um, we went to a club in Vegas because all my friends were like, you know, come out. You need to come out and, and just deal with it, which I think was the best thing that anyone ever said to me is like, don't wallow in it. Don't get upset. Go out. So we went to this place in Vegas and I was sitting there. And because, you know, in America, anything goes uh, not that I agree with most of the things that they do, but no. in Vegas, nobody cares. And I went down and I sat and these girls all came up to me and oh my God, we love your look. Are you in a band? And I was like, no, yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, the alopecians, I don't know. It's <laughs> night. And then I had to come back to London and just sort of um, deal with, unfortunately the press in london who don't they're not extremely kind no nope. yeah and um but the best thing was when i got home i'd left my daughter at home with her daddy so i'd gone away with her and my main worry i didn't care what anyone thought of me i just was worried about the fact that i was going to come home she'd seen mummy go away with hair and come back with no hair yeah and i didn't want her to be scared or freaked out 
And she just looked at me and she said, rock and roll. And I said, you know what? That's all I need. I don't care what anybody else thinks of me. I'm going to take this and I'm going to use it for the good of other people. So do you know what? Say what you like. The brilliant Gail Porter. Right, my next guest is someone that I forgot to include in my list at the beginning of this episode of people who hadn't been included so far. In fact, I didn't include him twice. I mean, why wouldn't you forget to mention an actor who starred in the greatest trilogy of films ever made, in my opinion? What a bloody idiot. Luckily, I've remembered to include him here. So here is Pippin Took from Lord of the Rings, better known as the delightful Billy Boyd. It is my childhood, and it it relates to my love of film, which is... uh, probably my great love, maybe. Mm. And I went to the cinema with a friend to see Bill Forsyth's movie, Gregory's Girl. Ah. Do you know it? Oh, who? it's the most beautiful film, isn't it? Sitting in that movie theatre, watching a story that I could relate to, Mm. from watching, you know, I'm used to going to the movies and watching either, you know, huge fantasy movies like the stop motion of that time, which was brilliant. Uh, Seven Voyages of Sinbad, those Mm. sort of things, which I loved. (laughs) Or great comedians like uh, Peter Sellers. And other than that, it was American movies telling American stories, you know, childhood, high school, whatever it is. Mm. But there was no stories that I could relate to. And then I went to the movie theatres and I watched a boy at a comprehensive school playing in a football team and falling in love with a girl in his class. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, I've, that is me. I know all of this. He's late for school. He doesn't relate to people around him. He's so deeply in love that he can't think of anything else. And I was, I, I was like, that movies can be this. Movies can tell stories about me, mm. about my life, you know, living in a, a working class place in, in Glasgow. And I was reminded, actually, and I, I didn't get to write back because I, I, I don't really understand social media and how it all works. <laughs> and I don't get direct messages because it's too, like, overwhelming. But I was scanning through messages once and I saw a guy said, my dad said that he went to see Gregory's Girl with you and you guys loved it so much you stayed, hid in the theatre and stayed and watched it again. Really? And did you? We absolutely did. <laughs> and I wanted to write back to this guy and say, oh, send my love to your dad, you know? Oh, yeah. Because I haven't seen this guy since, you know, no. second year. Mm. And uh, uh, I'd, I'd lost the message somehow. <sighs> but that, But that shows how much... We loved that film, mm. that we were like, let's just watch that again, you know? Yeah, so it's John Gordon Sinclair, isn't it, who's absolutely oh, brilliant in it. Absolutely brilliant. And kind of relating to the thing that we are talking about, about doing your first choice, Yeah, I bet his acting style then was just to do whatever came into his head. Yeah. And everything, every choice is perfect. <laughs> everything is wonderful in that movie. It's beautiful. He's so it's funny, but beautiful. he's so touching in it. Right? He's mm. he's because he's he's sort of tall and he's not in his body yet. No. So it's all he's all arms and, and weird <laughs> sort of gestures that he's obviously not putting on. It's who he is at that time. Yeah. And uh just absolutely charming and wonderful. Bill Forsyth, great director. Local hero, mm-hmm. comfort and joy, just these wonderful Scottish stories. Yeah. And, um, it's funny, isn't it, because that, that's as powerful, that story, as Gone for the Wind. So you, as you mm-hmm. say, that, those great big and sweeping American dramas, but there are moments in that film that are so touching and so beautiful. And just so real and Mm. and human. For people who haven't seen it, you must go and watch it. But he plays in a football team. He's the the goalkeeper. And they they sign a new striker at school (laughs) um, who's who's a girl, the first girl ever in the, the football team. And at one point she walks into the changing room when he's, you know, getting showered and he's got his clothes on and stuff. And, <laughs> but he's like, he's totally freaked out that there's a girl in there. And she starts talking about 
the summer before when she was on holiday in Italy and how she had this lovely time with these guys in Italy, you know, and and you could see him just thinking about it. And then it cuts to the next scene with Gregory going into the foreign language department saying, I'd like to learn Italian, you know. (laughs) (laughs) His his whole life would be shaped around just this girl saying a word to him, you know. It's just wonderful. I can watch that film over and over. All the choices are great in it because uh, the casting all the way through is gorgeous. There's nobody out of place. She... And to mm. my to my great shame, I can't remember her name. Do you? Um, hold on. It w- um, I don't, and she doesn't work as an actor now. I think no? she's. Oh, sorry. But she's she's fabulous in it. Oh, she's wonderful. And she's just she's just beautiful enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and strong enough. And mm. then and then the twist at the end when the girls sort of organise it for him to meet another girl mm. because she likes him and, the, you know, Gregory's girl doesn't really like him, but this other girl does. And they kind of work it out that he meets up with this other girl who turns out to be Claire Grogan. Oh, that's the one I fell in love with. Me too. Oh. This is the thing. It was so well crafted. Wasn't it? That you actually fall in love with the girl who's meant to be with Gregory anyway. Mm-hmm. Eh, from Altered Images. He was the singer from Altered oh, Images. yeah, fantastic. It's just, as you say, every choice in that movie. But for me, for it to go into the, the time capsule is because it, it was the first time I went to the cinema and saw myself, saw someone that could be me, you know. The lovely Billy Boyd. You know, I sometimes have to pinch myself when I think of the people who've been generous enough to give me their time. None more so than my next guest, a hero of mine, undoubtedly. The European, World and Olympic 100 metres champion, Linford Christie. Yes, Linford bloody Christie! Hey, hey, hey! But in fact, Linford didn't always win. You're standing on the track, 1991, looking over the score, thinking, I go my fastest ever and I come fourth. What's the point? And that's a year before Barcelona. Definitely. That was the year before Barcelona. I mean, you know, the thing is, like, I said to my coach, you know, let's pack it up. This is it. (laughs) And there's always this thing. People always say, oh, crowd advantage and everything else. But, you know, the British public, they, oh, I got letters, you know, we need you to, you know, just go one more year, one more year. Just Barcelona. We bought tickets for Barcelona. We, we're hoping to see you run there. Go to Barcelona. And then after that, if you want to retire, you go. Oh. And so, you know, my coach and I, we, we, we sat down and talked about, you know, what we can improve on and where, you know, we watched the race and see where things, you know, could get better. I mean, we always say, you know, you can't run faster than the personal best. And so before that, I mean, I think, gosh, my record was maybe nine could be 997, mm-hmm. I don't even know. It was, you know, just broke anyway, just broke 10 seconds. Yeah. And so you've got to think of how on earth you are going to get stronger, faster. Mm. And, of course, as the season go on, you never know. You've got to cope with maybe getting injured or everything else. I mean, there's just so many different things that yeah. you have to think about and that it all has to be right for you to improve. And was there a mental side to it? Do you think that... You went, I'm not going to suffer that again. Does that drive you on in that way, make you think, okay, that's not going to happen again. I'm definitely going to win next time. I mean, because now this is probably an illusion from my point of view, but because I'm a great athletics fan, I remember, and my wife is the real aficionado. She really knows these things. And I remember watching you stand on the line in Barcelona. And my wife said, he's going to win. Oh, thank her for the confidence. <laughs> she absolutely, she looked in your eyes, as it were, and you had that really steely determination, that almost a, a relaxation, the confidence of it. Well, you know, the, I tell you the, the strange thing is like, God bless your wife, because it's people like your wife and others who, I just don't think athletics is just something that you just get up and run. Mm. You know, you don't just get up and run. You know, you need, some of it is spiritual. You know, I've got to say that. And, you yeah. know, when you've got people at home or around the world supporting you. And, you know, they, they are giving you energy. You know, we say, you know, karma and everything else. So there's got to be something spiritual in the universe. Mm. And so therefore, you know, when people are supporting you and people are willing you on to win, that is how you win. Yeah. You know, because you, you have that extra energy. And I think that's what, for me, when I was out there, 
all those people cheering me. And then also on top of that, you, you need to have the right mental attitude. And for me, confidence was, is the biggest thing in our game. Yeah. And so I was very confident. You know, I come from a very confident family because my dad was a very confident person, my grandmother, you know. And so you've got to believe in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, I always said it wasn't that I was the fastest. I just made everyone else believe I was. <laughs> Brilliant. Linford did always look like he was the fastest, didn't he? Being the best at something is never easy. I mean, I should know. <laughs> I've never been the best at anything. Still, for someone like Michel Roux Jr., who is undoubtedly one of the best chefs in the world, it must be quite extraordinary when you find a plate of food, or in fact a mouthful of food, that you think is better than anything you've ever made. My other choice, which I think I'm going to go for, um, because it's food-related and, and it really is something special, um, is a moment that moved me to tears whilst eating. And, and I've always kind of, when people say that, oh, my word, this food tasted so good, I was moved to tears or I felt emotional. I've always said, well, that's okay. Food, is, food can you know, be, be all about a, a joyful moment and, and, you know, and can, can be a taste sensation that can make you, you know, arouse the senses and be very sensual and all, all of that. But I never really thought I'd experienced it until I tasted this particular dish. Well, it wasn't a dish. It was just one mouthful. Mm. And it was a couple of months, just before uh, lockdown. And it was with my wife, Giselle. And we were eating at a restaurant called uh, Endo uh, at the Rotunda. Uh, so that's at the Japanese restaurant where the old BBC was at White City. Mm. And um, so it's a very, very high-end Japanese restaurant, small, it's all at the counter, and the head chef, Endo-san, cooks and dresses the food in front of everybody and explains each and every dish. And there was one particular dish, the oyster nigiri, and I'd never tasted an oyster nigiri before. And it was just mind-blowing. And, and I looked at Giselle, and she looked at me, and we welled up. We, we literally welled up. The rice was just the right texture. It, it was cooked beautifully and perfect texture, but it was also, most importantly, the right temperature. And then the oyster had been very, very lightly steamed, but it still felt raw. So it had that lovely salinity, but the texture had somewhat changed. Mm. And there was a layer of flavor on there and just a hint of fresh wasabi. And it, it's so difficult to describe. But it, you just put it in your mouth and you just lingered on that flavor. And, and it was just like a, a, an adrenaline rush and a rush of emotions. Mm. And it, you just didn't want it to end. Amazing. Makes you want to try it, doesn't it? And I don't even like oysters. Okay, now I'm going to include a clip from the least famous person we've had on my time capsule. This is from a recording I made when I first had the idea of this podcast and wanted to try it out. All that time ago, I made a recording with my younger brother, Patrick Stevens, who's a lawyer, and it went quite well. But I never thought I'd put it out. I mean, he's not famous. This is supposed to be a podcast full of people that other people might know. Then my son, John, listened to it, and I listened to it, and then lots of other people did, because we decided it was too good not to put out. So here is my little brother, who's done some amazing things in the world of law himself, but he's talking about the person who inspired him to do it. Well, I think we, we talked about my job a little, and it was completely influenced by our dad and the stories that I heard mm. from when he was... Perhaps uh, tell us, right. well, for people who don't know, we both know what our dad did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that we know all that our dad did, frankly, no. because it... It was an amazing career. And I think one of the things that intrigues me, and I, I wish I was able to talk to him about now, now that I appreciate quite what might have been involved in some of this stuff, I would love to be able to discuss that detail with him. But as you well know, he defended Christine Keeler in the Profumo scandal. And that was 
probably the biggest case of his generation, even though he was much more known as someone who defended very serious criminals. I remember him always just writing briefs for barristers on the most awful murder cases or enormous armed robberies. And it just seemed very every day to me. Yeah, and I remember sitting in the kitchen chatting to him one night and he showed me some photos of people running away from a bank with guns and he said to me, look at those pictures, they're going to be famous in a year's time. Mm. And in a year's time when somebody called George Davis in South London was convicted of armed robbery, those very pictures were the pictures I remember them being run in the Daily Mirror on the the centre pages. And then of course... George Davis is innocent campaign sort out and, and they climbed up, I think, Nelson's column, which is very near where we are now, mm. uh, with a banner and they cut up the pitch at Headingley and eventually the Home Secretary gave George Davis a pardon. And I remember Dad telling me a story about George Davis because there was somebody at the time uh, who was in prison for poisoning people, someone called Graham Young, who was known as the Bovingdon Poisoner. Mm. And Dad always said how when he had to go into, I think it was Worm and Scrubs, after George Davis had been convicted and given something like 18 years in prison, he had to go in to advise him about his appeal. And he said to him, how are you doing, George? And he said, Harry, you are never going to guess who they have got serving the tea in here. <laughs> he said, only Graham Young the Poisoner. <laughs> he said, I walked up and he said, Want a cup of tea, George? (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm fine. (laughs) That's brilliant. Uh, The thing I always think about, Dad, that we don't really talk about is that he never actually qualified as a solicitor. He never became officially a solicitor. And yet, as we both remember, at his funeral, Jeremy Hutchinson, or Lord Hutchinson, who was the barrister who defended Christine Keeler, told me that he thought that Dad was the best instructing solicitor in the country. Yeah. So as a solicitor's clerk, he was writing extraordinary briefs yes, and, for people. And if you, if you remember um, Dad's 70th birthday where we did that, This Is Your Life, and Jeremy Hutchinson did a piece of the camera that was screened that night, he said he wanted to put on record without doubt everything he had achieved in his career he owed to our dad. It's extraordinary. Yeah. I think I might try some more not-famous people next year. Okay, it's ad break time, so sit back and relax, and we'll be back with more guests in a jiffy. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back. Right, let's take our next guest out of his large padded envelope. Yeah, that's a back reference to the guests in a jiffy remark just before the break, which may well be too far away for this joke to actually work. Still, no change there. Here is the actor Hugh Dennis talking about his mum and dad. Well, weirdly, it's quite difficult, really, because I am 
it sort of forced me to think about my attitude to life. Oh. <laughs> it's gone quite deep. And oh. I think, would I ever do a time capsule? I think I genuinely try always to live my life looking forward rather than backwards. Mm. So I have, and I think I probably got that from my parents, actually, so, who were sort of um, ruthless <laughs> <laughs> about throwing things away. You know, so you were you were sort of allowed. You were kind of allowed to to look back, but you never. Um, they weren't quite as bad as this. I had a, f- a friend at university who gave his parents. So uh, uh, at Cambridge and we, my college and the team I was in, one season we won everything playing rugby. So we won the the cup and the league and the sevens and the whole lot. We were both in that side, and uh, he gave his parents his rugby shirt to look after. And the next time he went home. They were using it as a floor cloth. <laughs> <laughs> so they were. <laughs> his most treasured item. Yeah, his most treasured item now being used to wipe the kitchen floor or to, to dry the dog or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was used for. And my mum and dad weren't quite like that, but there were very few mementos. And I equally have literally almost nothing. Um, do you think that's to do with moving around? Didn't your your father was a vicar, wasn't he? So yeah, he was a vicar who became a, a bishop. I said, I think it might have been. They were very interesting people, actually. I mean, I've got a couple. You know, a couple of the things relate to them. But they had met at the university in the nineteen fifties, where they were both reading theology. Right. So my dad went on to be a, a vicar and a, a bishop mm. subsequently, and my mum, I think, probably would have done had that been possible or legal yes. <laughs> at the time. They, again, but what they did do was they became this sort of incredibly sort of compact unit who kind of seemed to spend most of their lives actually not really looking after themselves, although they, they kind of did, but, you know, but actually looking out for everyone else. And even, so they, they both, uh, you know, they're both dead now, but they both died at the age of 88. And if you'd said to them, within six weeks of each other, actually, but if you had said to them, what are you doing this weekend, two months before they died, whatever, they would say, well, on Sunday, we're looking after the old people. <laughs> <laughs> You're 88. <laughs> and most of the old people were younger than them. So I think it was sort of born, I think it was slightly born anyway, of this kind of wish to never concentrate on yourself, really, I think. Oh, listen to my cuckoo clock. Have you got <laughs> that's that? lovely. It's yeah. completely wrong. <laughs> it's quarter to yes, 12, it, that's good. It yes. doesn't take the right time <laughs> at all. The delightful Hugh Dennis. Right, we've gone long enough without hearing from Danny Baker, I think, so here's a bit more. I remember him saying to me, he said, one day you pull back the wardrobe and there's nothing there, so you've got to go out and forage. That's what he used to call it, <laughs> forage. Uh, which just meant what he did when he left the dock, he, he did everything. He ended up working for, for builders. Now, my man was as good as I am at what we might call traditional male, you know, <laughs> duties. He couldn't do anything. I used to do a whole 20-minute thing about my old man paper in the front room. You couldn't go in there. We <laughs> was all made to sit in the kitchen. No, you, first off, there was the, my mum saying, Fred... Front room needs doing again. You know, we only did it six months ago. He's trying to give me a heart attack. Said, Fred, I can't. I don't have people around. It's disgracing that front room. Mm-hmm. You know, and he had, and if you remember, then you had to go to a wallpaper shop and get wallpaper books, which weighed a ton, yeah. and like the Gutenberg Bible with a handle on, <laughs> bring them home and go through and find the square page that you thought, that's it. And what do you think, Danny? Do you like that one or that one? I said, that one. I said, oh, no, no, no. And my old man said, just pick one. I don't know any of them. And back here, they have to go up, 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 up sorry, docs, get two more books, break his back. But when he used to be actually decorating, he'd take three days up to decorate. We, were, we couldn't go in the front room while he was doing it. We used to sit in the kitchen and just hear the most explosive swearing coming out. Anything? <laughs> what do you make me do? This is fucking screaming and shouting. And, and he never had a pasteboard. He used to turn the settee upside down, <laughs> I promise you, and put a sheet over it. That was his pasteboard. And uh, once we was in there and we were sitting in the kitchen biting our knuckles because you couldn't let him hear him laughing. He'd that's it, you fucking do it. And he'd go around the Jolly Gardeners. Uh, so, uh, I mean, no one was scared of him, but he was a very, he was like, he was like Tony Soprano. I know the old man, and he's screaming and shouting, and then we go, oh, for fuck's sake, and we're smashing at his glass. <laughs> and we thought, what's happened? And my mum said, what's your bleeding done? He's running in the front room. I say, I know nothing about that ground. I'm sure these ain't used anymore. It used to be a thing when you was lining up wallpaper with a plumb line. You put a long string with a weight on the end yeah. so you knew the edges were straight. <laughs> 
Well, we could hear him before it saying, stay still, you bastard. Stay still, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> this is the plumb line he's trying to get to, <laughs> to hang straight. And he says, stay still, you bastard. And then we heard the shattering of glass. What had happened? He'd lost patience with it, which for me, old man, was about three or four seconds. <laughs> and thrown it through the front room window, right? <laughs> thrown it out over the wall towards where the railway was. And my mum come in, he was standing there with his hands on his hips. <sighs> this rage. And my mum said, what's the matter with you, you nutty bastard? What are you doing? I bet not now. Not now. I've got the box of it. Not now. And I used to sit there and this kind of dialogue, I mean, it's verbatim, you know. I know it's not Oscar Wilde, but <laughs> and I used to hear the night now. She went, who's, who's going to come and I'll get the portal to come and do it, but not now, but I've got I've got me wild up. That's what you used to say. I've got <laughs> me wild up. I've got me wild up. The other... The, I called the second book Going Off Alarming. That was the other thing he used to uh, say. Yeah. I was ran, I was going off alarming. Going but, off um, alarming. But he, he had his wild up. Anyway, it was only he's only brought back to the real world when my mum said, You know, you could have hit Tom the tortoise. We had a tortoise called Tom. <laughs> you know, could have, and he went, No, I've not hit Tom. Don't be so dramatic. I've not hit Tom the tortoise. He's gone over the railway that one. I said, So now we've got to bowl the window up. Anyway, she went out to ring the porter in flats. Used to have a porter who lived in one of the blocks and come around and do jobs. And, uh, as you went out, you went, Danny, go in the garden, make sure I ain't killed Tom the Torch. <laughs> she thought he might have done. He actually thought he might have done. Poor old Tom the Tortoise. Life can be full of disappointments, can't it? Danny Robbins, the haunted and uncanny podcaster and author of the hit play 222 and the Battersea Poltergeist, which is absolutely brilliant, seems, on the surface, to have succeeded at everything. But as this clip shows... You can't win them all. That's the, the extent of my music career, basically. That, that, and that, and also um, coming second in the UK Air Guitar Championships. My other claim. Oh yes, yeah, second, yeah. Danny. What happened? Well, I mean, we were robbed. Is the short answer. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there was some nefarious chicanery going on. But we we had a, an air guitar band called Satan's Underpants, and we did it to uh, fight for your right to party by the Beastie Boys, and it was. In um, the Camden Palace nightclub, and it was properly rock and roll. We were right, wow. really dressed up to the nines with like tight leopard skin trousers and leather, and you know, big hair, like <laughs> big wigs. Hair. I mean, we looked amazing, and I think we somebody paid for like a, a replica Night Rider car to drive us to the venue, and it wow. was probably the most rock and roll moment in my life. And I still look back <laughs> at those photos and, and and mourn the passing of those days. But um, <laughs> for me, Mike, this is all about a deep tragedy that lies within me that has mm -hmm. probably powered me on to everything I've ever done since, which is that I always wanted to be a pop singer and I am utterly, utterly unmusical. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm so bad at music that it kind of almost becomes an art form in itself. Like, you know, when you have to clap along with a, a musical or a pantomime. And, I mean, I've, I've been to see you in pantomime, so I, I've been in this situation watching you, but I cannot clap. I can't clap in time and so i have to pretend i have to air clap I, I literally in the way that people mime singing i mime clapping because that's how arrhythmic i am i wish i'd known that i, I really wish i'd known that i would have got you up i know i'd love to be musical it's the tragedy of my life I, i'm a kind of suppressed um rock and roll star and and i've and i've had to put all my energies into other things you know like um initially into comedy and then now into my ghostly podcast and so on but i, I think somewhere in my head i'm still on stage at wembley <laughs> yes now when i said you can't win them all about danny i wasn't thinking of my next guest obviously someone who did literally win it all the english batsman david gower talking about well what else his favorite bat I should acknowledge that cricket has been rather good to me mm. and for me. And if I wanted to remember something special, then I would remember that 85 Ashes series. Yeah. And therefore, how best to do that? Well, it's either we put I have a little replica of the Ashes, which was presented to me not at the time, but a few years later, which is actually a really nice thing to have. Mm. Uh, it's in a little sort of glass globe. So you can either bung that in. Mm. Um, but possibly more personally... Uh, the bat. Ah. So cricketers know that the piece of wood you hold in your hands is kind of vital. And you pick up, you get sent bats made by really good bat makers who are trying to do their best for you so you can do your best for them, as it were. And the one I had that year came from a slightly unusual source. Um, at the time, this is, it's, it's 
one of those sort of secrets that you sh- shouldn't really reveal. But hmm. um, at the time, I had a very good relationship with Gray Nichols, the bat manufacturers in Sussex at Robertsbridge, and they are lovely. I mean, it was a family firm, great bat makers. I mean, it's, it's a genuine cottage industry down there. It certainly was then. Hmm. Um, so sheds everywhere, people with lathes and um, you know, woodworking tools and this, that and the other, just making bats. Amazing. And you could go down, pick them out and say, oh, that one feels nice, bouncer boy, you could have those. But that year, 85, I'd had my delivery of bats and was very happy with them. But the boss's son at Leicestershire at Grace Road, uh, Mike Turner Jr., played a bit of club cricket, I think, at Lushworth. And he'd been sent a bat by County Bats, County Sports. And I looked at this thing, oh, it's bounced a ball on it. And it felt absolutely brilliant. So I thought, well, this is too good to waste on him. Um, Which might sound a bit harsh, but I'm afraid that's true. I think it is, yeah. So I immediately gave him two of mine, said, I'm having that. And you do the thing where you put all the grey nickel stickers on the back of this Hunts County Sports bat, Mm -hmm. and you make it look like the real thing. It became the bat of the year, the bat of the season. Mm. And it's up in the attic somewhere, if I I can identify it in amongst the the rubbish up there. Um, but it was it was brilliant. It's one of those things where it's one of those bats where you just just touch the ball and it seemed to go miles. And it does wonders for your confidence because obviously if you trust that, you know, I'm sure golfers are the same with you know, a particular driver or something like that. But if you have a bat that works, you want to keep it going for as long as you physically can. So I, I play the test matches with it and use other bats in between, and they were they certainly weren't bad. They just weren't quite as good. Yeah. And at the end of a series where you've ended up with a record number of runs and your best ever season, then that's actually quite a special piece of kit. So, mm. you know, obviously I have very fond memories of it, um, very fond memories of what it brought. And for that reason alone, I think if you're looking into, you know, this time capsule thing, that has to go in. Hmm, that's quite a precious thing to be given the responsibility of burying in a time capsule, isn't it? It's strange the connections you discover about people you thought you knew when chatting on My Time Capsule. Take, for example, my guest, the actress Maggie Olrenshaw from Open All Hours and loads more. Now, I knew she supported Manchester City. I mean, nobody's life is perfect, but I never knew her other connection to that highly successful club until we talked about it in her episode. It was a toss-up between Egg Sandwiches and Main Road. Yeah, no, I can see Egg Sandwiches, but Main Road, I've got no idea why you'd want that. <laughs> because you're a Man United fan, aren't you? Yes, I am, yes. So, uh, you know, you know that Main Road was Manchester City's original ground. Indeed. So that was my introduction. That's where I used to go. Mm. Two and six in the Kipak stand, I think. <laughs> of course, I went with my dad first because mm. he had a season ticket. Yeah. And that was it. I, I fell in love. Well, it's another form of theatre, isn't it? Let's face it. It is. And you do fall in love. You're abs- that's exactly the way to describe it. Yeah. You fall madly in love with the players, the club, the place. Yeah, yeah. And the game. Mm. And I mean, I, I, of course, now we watch something virtually totally different. I mean, yeah. the artistry, the skill is incredible now. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Although I still think that if you put people like, well, Mike Summerby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they had players like that, yeah. playing against players. Now, I still think that they had the skill. Yeah. I just think that they played in more difficult times. The, the ball was heavier. Yeah. A lot the, heavier. The pitch was often terrible. Terrible. <laughs> so the idea that somebody like George Best could weave in and out of people was fairly impressive, I think. Yeah. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, yeah I'll give you that. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> you give me George Best then as being of reasonable quality. <laughs> How generous. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, the person that we would both love and in a way hate would be Dennis Law. Uh-huh. Because he yes. moved from Manchester United and then went to Manchester City. Yes. And scored the goal that sent Manchester United down, didn't he? I know. I know. And he'll never kind of be forgiven for that. There's a little personal connection there as well, actually. Oh? Well, I went out with him once. No. <laughs> I bet he was fun, wasn't he? I, I was still at school. I mean, <laughs> you know, he didn't know that, I'm sure. The, the thing I most remember is that his accent was so thick that I could hardly understand what he was saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified because, you know, I, I was a little schoolgirl and I didn't even know, you know, what I should be uh, drinking when he offered me a drink. Mm. And the other thing is, it was kind of, um, it was a double date with another of the players in City. And I knew, because I had my scrapbook full of, you know, all the players, Mm. I knew this guy was married, you know. And we went to a club in Ashton-under-Lyne, 
and the kind of headline woman singer, you know, then came and joined us and chat, chat, chat. And it was kind of obvious, even to me, (laughs) that they were an item. And I'm shocked, absolutely shocked. Dennis Law, who would have thought it? I wonder who the other player was. Still, it's not all showbiz tittle-tattle on my time capsule. It is mostly, obviously, but sometimes our guests deserve to be heard on a somewhat more serious level. Take the Green Party politician, Sean Berry. And when I say take her, I mean somebody please take her and make her bloody Prime Minister. The division between groups is ridiculous, and within groups. Yes, exactly. And and the, the whole the whole idea of having um, essentially a two-party system is that each of those parties is a big tent. The actual goal of politics is not to have arguments. I know people people see, you know, like things like question time create this impression that the idea is to have extreme points of view that, that, that are vying against each other. Actually, no, the idea of politics is to create space, a peaceful, civilised, rule-based space in which ideas can compete, but also where you're seeking to reach consensus. Absolutely. And this is completely forgotten about in our sort of media age where extreme points of view get really highlighted. And it's really frustrating. And that's why, you know, I don't understand people opposing proportional representation versus best past the post. Because in a proportional system, just to really do politics for a moment, um, each party gets to honestly say what its point of view is. We go into the mix, we get the right amount of votes and the right amount of seats. And Mm -hmm. then... We are made to work together to come to a consensus and a compromise or whatever it is to, to reach the right decision for the country. And the way that politics is organised as a kind of bun fight between two sides doesn't foster that kind of attitude at all, whereas proportional representation does. And you see that I work on the London Assembly. Exactly, yeah. We're a small party, the Greens in general, but on that body, we've got 13% of the vote. We've got three out of the 25 members. We've got essentially holding the balance of power a little bit and people listen to us. Our ideas make it through the mix. And (laughs) overall, it's a very civilised place to work. And that is not the same as the House of Commons in any way. No, but it's weird, isn't it, that, that people are so vehemently against the idea, oh, we can't possibly have that in this country. That's that's sort of Italy, and look at the chaos they're in. That's for every other country, more or less, apart from a handful. <laughs> but look at the chaos we're in, because we yeah. can't get one party to agree with each other. Yeah, and where the chaos isn't even out in the open, it's all in these, like, you know, back rooms and secret committees and things. Mm. Whereas under PR, you know, you can have your Brexit party and all of that arguing for things and, the you know, the Greens arguing for ecology. And we're all honest about what our platforms are. We're not trying to pretend that, that mm. we're something we're not. And I think that's that's actually healthy. An honest politician. Imagine such a thing. (laughs) Ridiculous. Right, time for the person who I think is my favourite guest from the past year. Sorry to everyone else, it was fun, and I'm very fond of you, and I'm grateful for you coming on, but I absolutely love Joe Wilkinson, particularly because he talks about things like this. My next thing I wanted to put in, weirdly, was my beach hut. How lovely. There you are. Yeah. I have a beach hut, mm. which we bought probably eight years ago now on Brighton Seafront. Uh-huh. And it sounds mad, but I can't sort of imagine not having it now. And we don't use it as much as we should, mm. like anything like so You can't be down there every day. But when we, it's just such a lovely thing to have. But it was also, it sort of signifies something, a sort of change in me, which was, I guess, like most people, you sort of, you grow up thinking kind of stuffs for other people. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we all sort of go, oh, you know, I'd love that. And I'd, I'd oh, wouldn't it be amazing if you did this or or were able to do that? And I think I, I sort of, my, my other half is quite, she's sort of a bit more, I'm very reserved with a sort of what I do with my life and how I behave and and she's a bit more, come on, let's just do stuff, you know, let's do this now, let's sod that, let's go and do whatever. Brilliant. And I remember walking down the seafront, and I, I really wanted to sort of change, sort of have a bit more jump in with both feet sort of attitude. Yeah. And I, I, I sort of was getting frustrated myself being the way I am about, like, being too reserved and going, no, I can't do that, it's oh, ridiculous, you can't, you know. And, and I think stuff like, I'm quite proud of the fact that, I tried doing comedy when, because a lot of people that do sort of, I don't, I don't know if this was like you, Michael, but there's someone in their life that you find out if someone 
as a comedian, you you talk to them and they go, "Oh, my auntie was a singer, right, or something yeah. like that." And they and there's just like a little, the door's slightly opened for them, and they can think, "Oh, well, you can do that." But it seems like most things feel like they're for other people. You know, you go, mm. you just like, kind of stay in your lane, sort of thing. And I remember walking down the seafront and looking at these beach huts and going, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to have one of those? Mm. And I said to myself, oh, you know, it's, it's for other people. I sort of said in my head. And I went, no, no, it's not. <laughs> and I went home and I said to my other half, I said, oh, we're going to buy a beach hut. <laughs> and uh, we did. And, and I still feel the same. I feel this sort of glow, even when I'm not there, that I go, oh, we got one of those. Mm. we're one of those people that you see when I, when people walk past the beach huts and look at them i go they're thinking oh i wish i had one of those <laughs> they are yeah and i was like we did it and i'm really, I was just sort of really proud of the fact that i sort of changed lanes and became someone that just does something a bit stupid and buys a beach hut basically Okay, one more burst of Danny Baker. Why not? After all, this is about the Beatles and some other quite interesting people. The Beatles I met all four of. I've met all four in my life, and I know. It's a good poker hand, that, whenever Mm. you play. Who's the most famous hand you've shaken, Mike? (laughs) Uh, I won't even bother to think who it is, because the Beatles win. Look at this hand here. Also, Bob Hope, Muhammad Ali, Tony Newley. Yeah, I know. Uh, Mm. That's why... I'm not allowed to have the ump. I'm not allowed <laughs> no. to ever feel sorry myself. I've had, a, a, you know, it's it's a, only a vowel difference between radio and rodeo. And I feel the two have been very good to me one way and the other emotionally. So, yeah, and and, and you do have to check yourself sometimes. It's, you know, more. I worked because of the six o'clock show. Not all the nitwit groups, mm. the Sex Pistols, your Clash and all of this. I did all that when I was on the NME. But because I was on the six o'clock show, I did stuff. With Milligan, Tommy Cooper, Malcolm and Wise, Amazing. Ken Dodd, yeah. uh, Mel Brooks, it's on and on and on and on and on. We have big guests there every single week, but I've got no photos of it. <laughs> I'm going to be in a nursing home, well, in about five years, and I'll be sitting there going, um, "Oh, I'm, I met you know Michael Jackson." That's oh, right, I, I, Mr. I, Baker. Of course I, you did. Yes, yeah. he, of course you did. He's off again. Love him. Yeah. Just keep just keep nodding and saying yes, you did. You know, <laughs> unbelievably though, I have. I couldn't put these best of episodes together without including the wonderful actor Mark Bonner, who comes pretty close to Joe Wilkinson in my mind. This is a story about his grandfather and why he's not really called Bonner at all. See, this is a a kind of sad thing uh, or a lamentable thing. The story of this is kind of lost with his death. Um, But his brother was in a concentration camp, I think, And he decided, along with his best friend, I guess, at the time, to leave before things got any worse. And uh, as far as I know, he walked from Warsaw to uh, Yugoslavia, which ain't no mean feat, as we know, and then got a boat from Yugoslavia to Southampton, I think, and and somehow worked his way up to Edinburgh and met my grandma, who was a a nurse at the time. Mm. But yes, I don't, I mean, it's a... I, you know, at some point I'd like to try and find out a little bit more or find out if, I know we've got family in Canada because um, the name, my name isn't Bonner, my name is Bednarski. He changed his name from Bednarski to Bonner, I think, in an effort to stop my dad getting bullied at school or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my wife's parents came from Poland. Oh, did they? Earlier than that, though, I think as part of the pogroms. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the Fenton in my name is Finkelstein. Oh, wow. Mm. I should have taken the theatrical name Michael Finkelstein. It'd be Finkelstein. Much more interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great uh, name. <laughs> it's a fantastic name. I did briefly dalliance with the, because um, my first name's Richard, and I thought Richard Bednarski would be a really good stage name when I was yeah. leaving there. But I just thought people are going to be, you know, it'll just be in meetings. Uh, this is Richard but. B- but not, but not, uh, no, but no, no, call someone else, call someone else. Call that Fenton Stevens bloke, he's good. <laughs> Fenton Stevens, yeah. I know, um, I toyed with the idea of calling myself Washington P. Risborough. <laughs> don't, no, don't, it's a signpost on the M40. <laughs> <laughs> God, when you're young, it, I know. And it seems such a good laugh, and... Uh, <laughs> Thank God they didn't do that. I know, stuck with it for life. Oh dear hell. Wattlington P. Risborough. Wattlington, there's a place called Wattlington, a village, and P. is Princess Risborough. 
Oh, Princess Risborough, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I kept saying to people, what do you think of the name Watlington P. Risborough? It's a good actor's name, isn't it? But people saying, fuck off. Don't be ridiculous. You wait off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I should have gone with one of those names. Or maybe Mike Finkelstein Stevens. Still, I'm going to finish the way I started, but not in this episode, episode one of this annual compilation, with one of the funniest men I know, Joe Pasquale, talking about his flying experience with the Red Arrows. So we're doing the show for uh, Lady RAF Reds, and one day the um, CEO of him was one comes in and says to us, uh, does anybody want to go up in the Red Arrows? We're doing a, a sortie tomorrow. Do anybody <laughs> would like to come up? And everybody goes, everybody's eyes widened, but no one sticks their hand up except for me. Don't ask me why. My hand just went like that. That's because you like frightening as Yeah, well. my job went, oh, I'll put it mm. up. And I didn't consciously put my hand up, but I just found my hand was in the air. I went, okay, Joe, you want to do it? Yeah. So they gave me a full medical. But the one thing I didn't tell them was a couple of days before I'd went, to Cyprus, I'd had a vasectomy, so I still had my stitches in. <laughs> so that's fair enough, we won't have any bearing on a flying no, down why a plane. Would it? Why would it have any? None whatsoever. It's nothing, great. nothing to worry about with G-forces like that? None of that at all. Yeah. No, no, no. So, of course, um, I'd get, get suited up, they'd give me a briefing like that, and, the, and I'm in with the squadron leader, right? I'm in the back. So you're in the, in the back bit, in the high position of the plane, mm. and he's in the lower position, but he's in the front. Obviously, got control of the plane there. And it is dual control. You can fly it from the back or the front, but I'm in the higher position. So I'm up there, he's down there, I'm down the top of his head. Uh, and they give you the whole briefing. They say, OK, we're going to be doing this, but uh, for insurance reasons, uh, because you're a civilian, I, I can't take you into formation with the rest of the lads. We will be sitting above uh, the formation and watching it because I'm, uh, you know, he's the one that's making sure they're doing everything right. Uh, he said, if we do have any problems with the aircraft uh, and uh, we need to eject, I will say eject three times. I will say eject, eject, eject. Then you, sir, you must push your, but there's a handle underneath, that red handle, whatever colour it was. You pull that handle as hard as you can. The canopy will explode and then the, you know, they eject out of the top of the aircraft. Mm. He said, I cannot eject for you. It's impossible for me to eject you out of the plane. I can eject myself, but I cannot eject you. You are the only person that can eject you. You can't eject me. I can't eject you. So I will say eject, eject, eject. It will be three times and then you pull the lever. If I say eject once, don't do it. If I say eject twice, <laughs> don't pull the lever. If you say eject three times, pull the lever. So I said, what happens if I don't hear you the first time? He said, well, I'll be gone. You will know that you should have gone by then. So I like, fair enough, okay. And then uh, they give me a briefing on the... Um, G-suit that we'll be wearing, so it's a proper suit, which I'd, I'd heard of G-suits, and I knew, roughly knew what it, what they were for. They inflate, <clears throat> Yeah, they inflate around the muscle groups, the major muscle groups of the body. So um, basically it's like a green overall type thing, a flying suit, basically, you yeah. know, uh, but it's got all these little uh, bladders in, is the best way of putting it. So you've got some around the calf, uh, around the top of the legs, uh, around the muscle group there, uh, go around the abdomen around here, so we've got those abs there, and they go around, they inflate around the chest and the top of the arms, mm. around the biceps up there. And that's where these bladders are. And then you plug it into the plane, because it's all computerised, right? And then mm. what happens if you do some sort of manoeuvre, then the bladders will inflate, and what happens, it, it stops the blood passing into the muscles. It keeps the blood in the brain yeah. so the pilot doesn't pass out. So if you're doing a loop-to-loop, I think you're falling about 5 or 6 G, which is 5 or 6 times your own body weight then. Yeah. If you're doing a loop-to-loop, when you're going into it, at the top of the loop before you come out, you're five times, you can't even lift your head off the back of the seat. That's how heavy it feels. Yeah. So we take off, and um, what's amazing is that they have like a metronome in there. It's a clicking sound all the time. Click, 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 click. Click, click, and you hear that going on all the time. Yeah. So I go, uh, smoke on, smoke off, like that. And so, but they're doing it on the click of the metronome. Right. So the next click is when it will go. So smoke on, click, that's when it goes. So, but the metronome noise, the clicking is going on all the time. And it means everybody that. does things in unison. In unison, that's exactly oh. what it is. That's what unifies the, the, the smoke on. So anyway, we, we take off. We've already done the shows for them, by the way. So they know who I am mm. already. So they know I'm going up as well. But they don't know about my vasectomy or anything like that. So, of course, we take off, and they, they start taking the piss while they're up there. So this red one, they're doing my voice. And whenever they talk to us, they're going, well, smoke on, smoke <laughs> off, all this malarkey, right? So, anyway, we take off, and the speed of it taking off, it, it shoots you in the back of the chair. It's like being in Thunderbirds, right? It's amazing. And then you take off, and you're doing whatever speed you're doing on takeoff, I don't know, for 100 miles an hour, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, and then you're up there flying about, and then we just do a bit of joyriding. We just fly about a little bit. And then we're going to go and sit above the boys, and we'll watch the display. 
And then yeah. they go off they, and they go and land. They say, okay, sir, that's all over. Would you like to uh, do a few manoeuvres then, sir? Because I'm um, a civilian. They still call me sir, which is always amazed to me when I'm <laughs> out and doing these things. They call me sir. What would you like to do, sir? Well, um, I don't know. I don't I don't fly planes. So do you want to just show, show me some things then? I went, yeah. Uh, how about a barrel roll? So I went, okay, let's do a barrel roll then. Don't worry about anything, sir. Just relax. Okay. And he starts doing his barrel, literally spinning the plane. Wow. Right? And then he stops it, levels it out, and I'm screaming, right? And then he levels it out, and he goes, look at the sky, sir. And I look up, and he went, what colour is the sky? I went, it's green. <laughs> he went, yes, yeah, sir, it's not the sky. And I didn't even know I was upside down no. still. Turns it straight and flips it. Like, bloody hell, I didn't even notice I was still upside down. Because I was so discombobulated, as it was. Like, bloody hell, we was upside wow. down for ages. Then he does a couple of other manoeuvres, and then uh, he says, oh, okay, sir, how about a loop-de-loop? Fancy a loop-de-loop? So I went... And but once again, I knew I was going to shit myself. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. My hand goes up slowly without me knowing I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I'll have some of that. Yeah, come on then. Let's do a loop the loop. <clears throat> oh, even that's bringing back the memories. So, oh. so okay. Well, what you do so is uh, you won't do anything, but you want to tense your stomach as we get to the top of the loop. Okay. So as we're, we're starting going up, um, I can feel the bladders inflating around my legs. But I, I at the time, don't anymore. I wore boxer shorts. And of course, my nads now haven't gone down the side of the boxer shorts. They've gone down in between the bladder as well. Oh, God. Right? So the, the bladder is now above my ball bag. <laughs> and my ball bag is between my leg and my bladder of the G-suit. But I don't notice my ball bag has gone down that low. So as we're doing the loop, loop, I can feel the bladder inflating and I can feel the pressure on my nad. <laughs> and I'm trying to manoeuvre my nad out and trying to do it. But of course, we're doing the 2Gs, 3Gs, 4Gs, and I can't get my nads out. <laughs> and I can feel the pressure on it and I'm screaming, oh, my nads, my nads, oh, my nads, come start, come start. And he goes, sir, if you don't stop screaming, I'm going to turn you off in my ears. Please stop screaming at me, sir. I can't stop screaming. <laughs> I can't stop screaming. And he just turns my finger off like that. And we do the loop to loop I don't tell him until afterwards. And of course, I, you know, only dogs could hear me by the time we landed. <laughs> there you are. Where else would you hear people off the telly talking about their nads? Yeah, I know it's not the greatest advert for the podcast. Wouldn't look great on a poster, but that's what this podcast is like, I'm afraid. Now, please do do all the things that people ask you to do on every podcast. That is rate, review, subscribe, follow, tell your friends, download the theme tune from Spotify. Actually, I doubt many ask you to do that. That's what makes this one different, I suppose. The fact that this is a family podcast. Not in the sense that it's for all the family, not with the amount of fucking swearing there is in this, but in the sense that it's made by a family. John, my son, who produces, composes, performs, does the ads and much more, and me. And I just chat. Yes, honestly, there's no one else. Absolutely no one. No publicists, nobody trying to get guests. We do everything ourselves. It's just the two of us. So if you enjoy supporting a small business, you can happily claim to be doing that by listening to my time capsule. If you've enjoyed listening to it over the past year, half as much as I've enjoyed making it, then I've enjoyed making it twice as much as you've enjoyed listening to it. I mean, come on, that's just maths. Happy New Year. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.